When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Facebook fury. Whistleblower Francis Haugen testifies in the UK as criticism against the tech giant mounts. Bumper buyback. HSBC plans a $2 billion splurge as profits jump. And Lara losses. President Erdogan threatens to expel Western diplomats. The currency plunges. It's Monday. Let's make a move. And a warm welcome once again to a new week here on First Move. And it's a face the painful truth moment for Facebook and its near 3 billion users. The tech giant faces accusations that it knew users were being targeted by dangerous, divisive and untruthful content on its platforms and most importantly failed to stop it. CNN, just one of a group of 17 news outlets with access to internal documents that paint a damning picture of Facebook's impact on our society. We'll be speaking with renowned journalist Carol Cadwalder, who rose to international prominence when she exposed the Cambridge Analytica scandal back in 2018. Remember that? She says this is the beginning of the end for the House of Zuckerberg. Really? Well, we'll find out how and why she believes that. And as always, I'll suggest we follow the money and ask whether this scandal breaks the Facebook business model. Remember, it relies on advertising by firms both big and small. And we spoke to startup Clean Cult, remember, a few weeks ago, who said it wouldn't exist without being able to advertise on Facebook. We'll find out what recent scandals have meant for Facebook's bottom line when they report earnings after the bell tonight. For now, it's the opening bell on Wall Street that's our focus. Futures relatively unchanged and uh, consolidation, I think, that we're seeing on the cards after Friday's record close for the Dow. Also an uneven start to the week in Europe and Asia, though the Shanghai Composite, as you can see there, closing firmly in the green global stock, shrugging off warning signals like inflation gauges in the markets all around the world, hitting multi-year highs, so-called inflation break-evens. And U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen telling CNN on Sunday, inflation, at least as far as America is concerned, will not fall back to that 2% target level until the back half of next year. There is nothing temporary about that, transitory about that. Okay, let's get to the drivers and Facebook's face the music moment. The social media giant facing fresh claims that it failed to act despite knowing its platform was being used to incite civil violence in Ethiopia, to trade domestic workers and to spread QAnon conspiracy theories. This damning picture painted by a new trove of internal documents referred to as the Facebook Papers. The documents were among the disclosures to the US SEC by Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen. Today, as I mentioned, she'll be testifying before lawmakers in the United Kingdom. And Donny O'Sullivan joins us now. Donny, let's talk about the international angle, because I think the revelations that we've seen this morning from the Facebook papers, I've mentioned Ethiopia, also point to India and actually test cases there that were done that showed that within days, weeks of new users join and they were bombarded by misinformation, graphic pictures, details. Everything that we've suggested is wrong, actually, about Facebook, and there's no way really to control it. Yeah, Julia, I mean, I think that's a really important point, you know, for as bad as Facebook here is in the United States when it comes to election misinformation fueling uh, the January 6th insurrection. We know that outside of the United States, things look far, far worse. And we even heard that from another Facebook whistleblower a few weeks ago, Sophie Jung, who left the company uh, last year, where she said the company doesn't really 
essentially spend enough time or care about the rest of the world in a, in a way that they do about America. Uh, Facebook, of course, denies that. But what we've seen in these internal documents is a, a many sort of simple experiments, really, that Facebook staff were doing. They wanted to see what it would be like for users uh, on the platform. So in India, they just set up a new account, uh, started following the recommendations, the groups that Facebook's own algorithms uh, were pushing. And they said after three weeks, after and New York Times pulled this out over the weekend, after three weeks, uh, the page, the feed was totally covered in hate, uh, sectarianism, even uh, violence. And so it's very, very hard for Facebook to, to back away from this stuff when simple experiments are showing how flawed their platform is. Yeah, and the mismatch in resources, Tony, I think, which is an important thing, um, spent on dealing with some of these issues. 87% of the global budget for time spent on misinformation is spent in the United States, 13% for the rest of the world, even though North America is just a tiny fraction, it's around 10%, I think, of the social network's daily active users. And I know Facebook has responded on this and said, look, there's third party third parties that are involved in analysing this information and helping them with this. So those numbers aren't quite accurate. But the resources spent on trying to tackle this simply aren't enough. And I know um, our colleague Brian Stelter spoke to Senator Richard Blumenthal over the weekend, and he basically said that they're utterly incapable of policing themselves. And he has a point. What does it take to get action from regulators, don't you, in the face of all of this? <laughs> I mean, that that's a great question. You know, people like Blumenthal on the Hill, they are talking a lot and they do want to get, they say they want to get regulation, but we're still uh, waiting for that in the US. I mean, Facebook is even saying, well, you know, regulate us if, 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 you, if you care so much about this. Mm. Um, I mean, I think we have seen over the past few weeks, especially when it comes to we learned about the harms that Instagram specifically can cause on children. Uh, you know, I think that is something that has become a bipartisan uh, issue here, obviously, in the US and something that might inch towards uh, regulation. But, I, I, you know, I mean, really what these papers show, and I, I can show you, <laughs> I've been walking around all day with this. Uh, these are just some of the leaked Facebook documents. These are just a small sample uh, of documents that are related actually to January 6th and to hate uh, on the platform. There are tens of thousands of documents. We, along with 16 other news organizations here uh, in the US, are going through them. This is going to be a real challenge for Facebook. You mentioned at the top, though, you know, is this the nail in the coffin for Facebook? I'm not so sure. (laughs) <laughs> We've seen them weather so many storms before. This is an extremely important conversation to have. But will it eventually fizzle out after a few weeks and we'll forget about it? It's very possible. And I think that's probably what Facebook is hoping for. And, of course, we've heard reports that Zuckerberg is even thinking of coming up with a new name for the company. Yeah, I mean, really. And, and that's why I brought it back to the business model, Donny, because it always has to come back to this and advertisers. And it's not the biggest advertisers that you can put pressure on. It's the two million small companies, one of whom told us in the last couple of weeks, they simply wouldn't exist without Facebook. Their business would not exist if they couldn't advertise for customers on Facebook. So it's that battle of, of sort of public utility. WhatsApp as well. A public utilities yep. we found two weeks ago when we had this outage. Um, you and I have long been sceptical. I guess one of the other questions for me, Donian, you can perhaps give us the best sense of this. To what extent when you've got employees inside the company saying, look, we're not going far enough, we're worried about what's going on and the email traffic that's related to that, that the whistleblower brought out. Does this tie it enough to senior executives, to Mark Zuckerberg himself, to Sheryl Sandberg, and not only the public face that they put on this, but the decision making inside to make change or not make change or to reverse change after the election, as an example in the US? Yeah, I mean, I think what's clear from both these files and also what Facebook's public actions is that the buck stops with Zuck. Um, You know, there's so many uh, times we've seen over the past few years where Trump just taking Trump as an example, violated their policies, right, in terms of um, uh, glorification of violence when it came to looting and shooting and things like that. And Facebook bent its rules. And this is in these files as well, where they say we bent our rules to placate these politicians and powerful people. And also a person in a Facebook employee made a point in the document to say, look, we have all these policies. We have all these engineers who are building systems to uh, detect when these policies are broken. But then with the stroke of a pen or a click of a a mouse, uh, Zuckerberg can say, actually, you know what, forget about that policy. This person is powerful and we need to let them do what they do. So there's frustration inside the company. People are sounding the alarm. Uh, 
Clearly, though, it doesn't seem to be making its way up uh, to the C-level suites uh, in a way that we're seeing actual impact on the platform. I should, of course, mention, Julia, because I'll probably get a call from Facebook after uh, this hit that Facebook uh, denies uh, the the broad assertions being made by Francis Mm. Hogan. They said that they are a corporation that doesn't push profit over safety. Yeah, uh, and that context is important as well. And the voice from uh, what Facebook is saying at this moment, um, Doni, thank you for that. Um, people have to make their own minds up. Donia Sullivan, thank you. Thank you. OK, on the Turkish lira hitting a record, fresh record low today after President Erdogan ordered the expulsion of ambassadors from 10 Western nations, including the United States. The nation signed a letter demanding the release of the jailed businessman and philanthropist Osman Kavala. Arwa Damon joins us now from um, Istanbul. Arwa, we'll bring it back to the economics. I was looking down the list of these nations where the uh, diplomats have been threatened with expulsion, and I believe it makes up half of the top 10 trade partners for Istanbul. It's adding a, uh, sorry, for Turkey. It's adding sort of economic crisis on top of political crisis on already a crisis in the nation. What do we make of this? Quite potentially, yes, especially if those countries choose to try to squeeze the economic screws when it comes uh, to Turkey's position on Osman Kavala. A little bit of background uh, on that story. Kavala was detained back in 2017, accused first of being a part of the 2013 Gezi Park protests. A few years later, he was acquitted of those charges, ordered released, only to be rearrested a few hours later, this time on charges in connection to the 2016 failed coup. Now, a number of human rights organizations and watchdog groups have said that his detention is politically motivated. These 10 countries, Western nations, have for quite some time now been a bit more quietly calling for Kavala's release, now doing it uh, in that very public statement that was jointly signed by all 10 of them. This aggravating President Erdogan uh, over the weekend and the Turkish government that views this as being the West once again meddling in Turkey's uh, internal affairs. The government here claims to maintain that the judiciary is independent and that basically the West should mind its own business, saying that these 10 ambassadors will be declared persona non grata, that being uh, ordered to the Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs. There is a ministerial cabinet meeting that is happening. As far as we're aware at this stage, uh, none of these embassies have been officially notified of this step just yet. And we're most certainly, though, already seeing the impact uh, of this on the Turkish lira, which has for quite some time now been on a decline for a number of other factors that have nothing to do with Kavala. But the bottom line for the vast majority of Turks and of foreign investors is that right now Turkey is not looking like if you're a foreigner, a stable economic investment. And if you're a Turk, you're just watching the value of your money dwindle away and the cost of living rise significantly. Yeah, I mean, we've got the central bank cutting rates in the face of rising and already high inflation. You make some great points there. I'm sure some advisors around him have said, do we really want to do this? We'll see. Arwa Damon, thank you so much for that. Problems? What problems? The Asia-focused British bank HSBC is shrugging off exposure to China's property crisis with surprise profits and a share buyback on the way. Anna Stewart joins me on this $2 billion worth of buybacks. That sends a huge signal of confidence, I think, from the bank. How are they achieving it? Walk us through these numbers. Yeah, I think that is the top line for the investors, right? $2 billion share buyback. I think they're pretty pleased with that. And the comments from the CEO, Noel Quinn, today saying the lows of recent quarters are behind us. Really bullish outlook here. Um, they've been able to release $700 million worth of cash that they built up for loan loss provisions. Uh, all regions were profitable. Of course, the lion's share coming from Asia and particularly China. Um, and they're looking at interest rate rises. And I thought some of the comments around that have been really interesting, actually. Uh, particularly with the UK, they point out in their call that a 25 basis point rise would increase their income by half a billion dollars in one year. And the consensus, they say, is now for a two or three uh, number rate rise between now and the end of next year. So all of that very bullish. This does, of course, follow on through from... Strong results from Barclays last week, lots of strong results from the Wall Street banks. It's not exactly an outlier, but I think we're particularly interested here in HSBC, given its uh, reliance on Asia, given its exposure to China, uh, given that that is somewhere where we're seeing continued COVID lockdowns and, of course, the fallout from Evergrande. 
Oh, yes, you raised the perfect point there for me. Um, What did they have to say about exposure potentially to the property market in China and Evergrande specifically? And one of the other things that caught my attention as well was that they said that they weren't getting involved in these SPAC deals, these special purpose acquisition vehicles that allow companies to very quickly IPO. And that suggests to me that they're worried about trouble brewing in that sector, too. It certainly sounded like it, didn't it? And it's quite interesting when an earnings call and all the interviews that follow are more concerned really with, with what you're not exposed to as to what you are. Um, but of course, they had to tell us uh, about their exposure to Evergrande, given their share price really did track down during that crisis that unfolded in recent weeks. Um, they had lots of uh, caution to say. Uh, they say they've had an intensive review and currently have no direct exposure to the major property developer stocks. They are happy with their overall exposure, but Julia, the CEO, also said he would be foolish to say there's no second order risk. Um, I think their headline, really, the fact that they're willing to offer a $2 billion share buyback, hopefully it's the actions. They're putting their uh, money where their mouth is quite literally there. They're clearly quite happy with their exposure currently when it comes to China and property. 100% agree. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, let's move on. Here are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Sudan's military says it's dissolved the country's transitional government and declared a state of emergency. A government official tells CNN the prime minister and his wife have been arrested and taken to an undisclosed location in the military in this military takeover. CNN's Larry Madero joins us now. Larry, good to have you with us. What more do we know about this? Clearly, it's been weeks, months of tension with this transitional government, and now it seems to be over. It seems to have succeeded because there was an attempted coup just last month which was blamed on forces loyal to the ousted president Omar al-Bashir. But this morning, a complete military takeover in Sudan. The general there in charge of the country, who was the military figurehead, and and partly with the the civilian leader, the the Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok, went on to state television, announced the dissolution of the government, that uh, governors had been removed from office, the cabinet was no longer in place, sections of the constitution has suspended, and people have taken to the streets because they have been told by the Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok to defend the revolution by the Sudan Professionals Association to go out there and protect the gains that have been made since 2019 when Omar al-Bashir was removed from power following popular protests. I spoke to the Prime Minister just last month, a day after that failed coup attempt. This is what he said about the possibility of another coup. We can only guard against another coup attempt by relying on the forces that are part of this uh, transition and they are guarding it. And on the hardships of the, on the economic front, we think the most serious part of it is behind us. The Prime Minister has had to put in place some tough economic measures that he himself described as such because he's trying to get some debt relief from the IMF. But this looks really bad for the U.S. because the U.S. envoy Jeffrey Feltman for the Horn of Africa was literally in Sudan until yesterday meeting with the Prime Minister, meeting with the military leadership and telling them that the U.S. supported the democratic aspirations of the Sudanese people. And as soon as he left, the military have taken over, going against everything they told the U.S. that they would be committing to, even though they're still promising an election in July 2023. But people in the country just don't think, after this power grab, that's a possibility. Yeah, and how are the people reacting, Larry? There are people who have taken to the streets all this morning. They have been lighting fires. They have been setting up barricades. They've blocked some bridges leading to the military, the general command of the military. There's been weeks of protests, but especially this past week, both sides, people who are supporting of the military leadership, but also of a civilian leadership, have uh, had public protests. But today, this was not surprising for many of them because one official who is an advisor to the prime minister has said, told CNN, that the prime minister was under pressure, was under pressure to dissolve the government and the people saw that coming, which might explain some of the reaction this morning, seeing people on the streets trying to say that, listen, we want a return to civilian rule. Yeah, prime minister under pressure and then given no choice. Larry Vidomo, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Okay, let's move on. Japan says it will monitor the Russian and Chinese navies in the Pacific Ocean after the two countries held joint naval exercises. 
Japan's defense ministry says at least 10 Russian and Chinese vessels made what it calls, quote, unusual moves, passing close to an island in southern Japan. Parts of China are tightening restrictions on travel and social gatherings as the government battles a new COVID-19 outbreak, this ahead of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Meanwhile, Singapore reported more than 2,700 new cases of the virus on Sunday. Authorities there say employees must be fully vaccinated before returning to work in January. Okay, still to come here on First Move. Honey, I shrank the IPO. Volvo Cars is set to go public, but it's raising less than it intended to. And running out of friends, new revelations and whistleblower testimony deepen the crisis at Facebook. We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures are a touch higher ahead of a furiously busy week for tech earnings, in particular Alphabet, Amazon and Apple, among others, reporting later this week. And of course, as we've mentioned, Facebook after the closing bell today and not the only ones to watch. Consumer staples and blue chips also reporting in droves too. 3M, Visa, Boeing, Coca-Cola, Kraft Heinz, Starbucks and Caterpillar will all give us some fresh indication on economic recovery, price pressures and supply chain snags too. And this could finally, finally be the week when U.S. Congress acts on both the bipartisan infrastructure package and the Democrats' spending bill. We will believe it when we see it. Let's move on. Rovos have a reputation for being spacious and safe. Not sure investors feel quite as comfortable with the automaker's shrunken down IPO. Paula Monica joins me now. Interesting, Paul. Scaling back the size of the IPO, delaying it by a day and pricing at the bottom end of a range. And it comes down, I think, to concerns and fears surrounding Chinese ownership. Yeah, I think, uh, Julia, that there are clear worries about the control that uh, Geely in China has over Volvo. And that is a primary reason why the company seems to be scaling back the plans for the IPO, selling, um, you know, not as many shares. I think, you know, that macro factors are at play as well, worries about the, uh, the Delta variant of COVID and what that's going to do to the global economy. But we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that Volvo, while like every traditional car company is amping up its electric vehicle plans, they still pale in comparison to where companies like Tesla are that dominate this market right now. This is such a great point. Um, I was looking at some of the numbers on this, and if this is where they price, they're actually going to be less than worth less than a Polestar, who we've interviewed on the show a number of times. And this, of course, is the electric car maker that's been also spun out um, of the Swedish car maker. And to your point, if you look at the comparison, Polestar is obviously pure electric or pure play electric cars. Volvo, just three percent of their cars today actually are electric vehicles and obviously they want to be fully electric by 2030. So um, in the CEO's words, Polestar is 10 years ahead of us, quote. That's what he said to the Financial Times. So there perhaps is a China thing here that there's something else going on. Yeah, definitely. Investors realize that since Polestar is itself going public through a merger uh, with a SPAC, then I think investors you know, it's not that hard to look at the uh, uh, environment right now and do the math. You could own Volvo, which has you know exposure to Polestar, or you can just wait and own Polestar, which gives you pure play electric vehicle, much exciting, more exciting growth prospects without all the baggage that comes with Volvo. Uh, so I think that is potentially a problem for the Swedish auto giant as well. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Okay, let's move on, because we also had reservations about um, a potential deal that was rumoured last week as well. And it seems no pin in Pinterest for now from PayPal's uh, perspective. Yeah, PayPal stock, uh, (laughs) very well played. (laughs) PayPal stock was, uh, you know, hit, uh, you know, on the speculation that this deal was going to happen. And I think that, uh, you know, this is a recognition of a couple of things. I mean, one, Pinterest you know, uh, potentially wants more money in a deal. I mean, I did find it interesting that PayPal said that the talks are not happening for now or right now, which doesn't preclude some sort of transaction taking place at a future date. But I think for PayPal as well, this might have been a bit of a trial balloon to kind of see, you know, leaking some of the uh, reports of this interest out there. 
because this isn't on the face of it a deal that makes entirely strategic sense for PayPal. It's a bit of a reach to get more into social media and some of the problems that we discussed on the show last week that come with having social media exposure. So I think, well, for PayPal, you know, it's a company that's really competing with Square. Square just did a big deal for a buy now, pay later company. And I think that's something that makes more strategic sense. So PayPal might have just decided, okay, this is interesting. We may still come back to it at a later date, but right now, doesn't look like either Pinterest wants us to do it, and Wall Street isn't too happy with the uh, notion of an acquisition this large either. Yeah, the timing, I think, with the Facebook revelations as well, to your point about getting into social media at this moment in time, a little bit uncomfortable. The trial balloon became a bit of a lead balloon, but the balloon is not yet popped, to your point. They may come back. Paul we'll be talking about this again, I suspect. I'm sure we will. Paula Monica, great to see you. Thank you. You're watching First Move. Stay with us. There's more to come. Welcome back to First Move. And I want to get you straight over to London now in the UK Parliament, where British lawmakers are hearing testimony from the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen. Let's listen in. 97% or something of what they take down happens because of their robots. But that's not actually the question we want answered. The question we want answered is, did you take the hate speech down? And and the number I've seen is like 3 to 5%, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was some variation within the documents. I think it's a really important point as essentially what we're looking at here is the creation of, a, of an independent regulator for the tech sector that not only do we need answers, but we need to know what the right questions are as well because the official statistics are so misleading. Um, part of why I came forward is I know that I have a specific set of expertise. Like I've worked at four social networks. I am an algorithmic specialist. So I worked on search quality at Google. I ran ranking for um, the new home feed on Pinterest. Um, I have an understanding of how AI can unintentionally behave. Facebook never set out to prioritize polarizing divisive content. It just happened to be a side effect of choices they did make. Um, Part of why I came forward is that I am extremely, extremely worried about the condition of our societies, our condition of the global (coughs) south, and the, the interaction of the choices Facebook has made and how it plays out more broadly. So things I'm specifically worried about are engagement-based ranking, which Facebook has said before. Mark Zuckerberg put out a white paper in 2018 saying engagement-based ranking is dangerous unless the AI can take out the bad things. And as you saw, they're getting 3 to 5% of things like hate speech. They're getting 0.8% of violence inciting content. Um, engagement-based ranking prioritizes that kind of extreme content. I'm deeply concerned about their underinvestment in non-English languages and how they mislead the public that they are supporting them. So Facebook says things like, we support 50 languages, when in reality, most of those languages get a tiny fraction of the safety systems that English gets. Also, I don't think this is widely known, UK English is sufficiently different that I would be unsurprised if the safety systems that they developed primarily for American English were actually under-enforcing in the UK. I wouldn't be unsurprised at that. And Facebook should have to disclose dialectical differences. I'm deeply concerned about the false choices that Facebook presents. They routinely try to reduce the discussion to things like, you can either have transparency or privacy. Which do you want to have? Or you can, uh, if you want safety, you have to have censorship. When in reality, they have lots of non-content-based choices that would sliver off a half percentage point of growth, a point, a percentage point of growth and Facebook is unwilling to give up those slivers for our safety. And, um, and I came forward now because now is the most critical time to act. When we see something like an oil spill, that oil spill doesn't make it harder for a society to regulate oil companies. But right now, the failures of Facebook are making it harder for us to regulate Facebook. So on, on those failures, looking at the way mm-hmm. the platform is moderated today... Do you think it, unless there is change, do you think it makes it more likely that, we'll, that we will see events like the insurrection in Washington on the 6th of January this year, more violent acts that have been driven by Facebook systems? Do you think we will, it's more likely we will see more of those events as things stand today? I, I, I have no doubt that the, cha- like the events we're seeing around the world, things like Myanmar and Ethiopia, those are the opening chapters because engagement-based ranking does two things. One, it prior- prioritizes and amplifies divisive, polarizing, extreme content, and two, it concentrates it. 
And so if Facebook comes back and says, only a tiny sliver of content on our platform is hate, or only a tiny sliver is violence, one, they can't detect it very well, so I don't know if I trust those numbers. But two, it gets hyper-concentrated in you know, 5% of the population. And you only need 3% of the population on the streets to have a revolution. And that's dangerous. I want to ask you a bit about that, that, that hyper-concentration, sure. particularly an area that you worked on uh, in particular, and that's Facebook groups. I remember being told several years ago by a Facebook executive that the only way you could drive content through the platform is advertising. Mm. I think we see that is, that is not true, and groups are increasingly used to shape that experience. We talk a lot about the impact of um, algorithmic-based recommendation tools like Newsfeed. To what extent do you think groups are shaping the experience for many people on Facebook? Groups play a huge and critical role in driving the experience on Facebook. Uh, when I worked on civic misinformation, this is like based on recollection, I don't have a document, but I, I believe it was something like 60% of the content in the newsfeed was from groups. I think a thing that's important for this group to know is that Facebook has been trying to extend the number of sessions, like get you to consume longer sessions, more content. And the only way they can do that is by multiplying the content that already exists on the platform. And the way they do that is with things like groups and reshares. So if I put one post into a half million person group, that can go out to half a million people. And when combined with engagement-based ranking, that group might produce 500, 1,000 pieces of content a day, but only three get delivered. And if your algorithm is biased towards extreme polarizing divisive content, it's like viral variants. Those giant groups are producing lots and lots of pieces of content, and only the ones most likely to spread are the ones that go out. It was reported, I think, last year by the Wall Street Journal that uh, 60% of people that joined Facebook groups that shared extremist content and promoted extremist content did so, act, did so at Facebook's active recommendation. So this is clearly something Facebook is researching. What action is Facebook taking about groups that share extremist content? Um, I don't know the exact actions that have been taken in the last you know, six months, a uh, year. Um, Actions regarding uh, extremist groups that are recommended actively to users, promoted to users, is a thing that Facebook shouldn't be able to just say, this is a hard problem, we're working on it. They should have to articulate, here's our five-point plan. And here's the data that would allow you to hold us accountable. Because Facebook acting in a non-transparent, unaccountable way will just lead to more tragedies. Do you think that five-point plan exists? Uh, I, I don't know if they have a five-point plan. Or any plan? Did yeah, they, did I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I, I didn't work on that. Okay. But, but, I mean, to what extent should we be considering groups? Or should a, reg should a regulator, UK regulator, be asking these questions about Facebook groups? I mean, how, I mean, from what you're saying, they are a significant driver of engagement. And if engagement is part of the problem, the way Facebook have designed it, then groups must be a big part of that too. Groups, part of what is dangerous about groups is that, uh, you know, we talk about sometimes this idea of, uh, is, is this an individual problem or is this a societal problem? Uh, one of the things that happens in aggregate is the algorithms take people who have very mainstream interests and they push them towards extreme interests. You can be someone center-left and you'll get pushed to radical left. You can be center-right, you'll get pushed to radical right. You can be looking for healthy recipes, you'll get pushed to anorexia content. There are examples in Facebook's research of all this. One of the things that happens with groups and with networks of groups is that people see echo chambers that create social norms. So if I'm in a group that has lots of COVID misinformation, and I see over and over again that if someone gives uh, COVID vaccine, uh, like uh, things they encourage people to get vaccinated, they get completely pounced upon. They get torn apart. I learn that certain ideas are acceptable and unacceptable. When that context is around hate, now you see a normalization of hate, a normalization of dehumanizing others, and that's what leads to violent incidents. I mean, many people would say that groups, particularly large groups, and some of these groups have hundreds of thousands of members in them, millions. Yeah, millions, they should be much easier for the platform to moderate because people are gathering in a, in a common place. Um, I strongly recommend that above a certain size group, they should be required to provide their own moderators and moderate every post. This would naturally, in a, a, a content agnostic way, regulate the impact of those large groups. Because if that group is actually valuable enough they will have no trouble recruiting volunteers. But if that group is just uh, an amplification point, like we see um, foreign inf information operations using groups like this and virality hacking, that's the practice of borrowing viral content from other places to build a group. We see these, these places as being, um, if you want to launch an advertising campaign with misinformation in it, we at least have a credit card to track you back. If you want to start a group and invite a thousand people every day. Like the limit is, I think, 2,200 people you can invite every day. 
you can build out that group and your content will land in their newsfeed for a month. And if they engage with any of it, it'll be considered a follow. And so things like that make them very, very dangerous and they drive outsized impact on the platform. So, I mean, from what you say, if, if a, if a bad, bad actor or agency wanted to influence what a group of people on yes. Facebook would see, you'd probably set up Facebook groups to do that more than you would um, Facebook pages and run advertising. And that is definitely a strategy that's currently used by information operations. Another one that's used, which I think is quite dangerous, is you can create a new account and within five minutes go post into a million-person group, right? There's no accountability. There's no trace, right? Uh, you can find a group to target any interest you want to. Very, very fine grain. Even if you removed micro-targeting from ads, people would micro-target via groups. And again, I mean, what, you know, what do you think the company's strategy is for dealing with this? Because again, there were, there were uh, changes made to Facebook groups I think in 2017, 2018, um, to create more of a community experience, I think Mark Zuckerberg said, which is good for engagement. But it would seem similar to changes to the way Newsfeed works in terms of the content that it, it prefers and favours. These are reforms the company have put in place that have been good for engagement, but have been terrible for harm. I think there's a, a, we need to move away from having binary choices. There's a huge continuum of options that exist. Uh, coming in and saying, hey, groups that are under 1,000 people are wonderful. They create community. They create solidarity. They help with people with connections. <coughs> if you get above a certain size, maybe 10,000 people, like, you need to start mo- moderating that group because that alone, or get, let, that naturally rate limits it. And the thing that we need to think about is where do we add selective friction to these systems so that they are safe in every language? You don't need the AIs to find the bad content. Is, in your experience, is Facebook testing its systems all the time? Does Facebook experiment with the way its systems work around how you can increase engagement? And obviously, you know, in terms of uh, content on the news feed, we know it experimented around the election time around the sort of news that should be favoured. So, so how does Facebook work in, in, in experimenting with its tools? Facebook is continuously running many experiments in parallel and little slices of, of, the, of the data that they have. Um, I'm a strong proponent that Facebook should have to publish a feed of all the experiments they're running. They don't have to tell us what the experiment is, just an ID. And even just seeing the results data would allow us to establish patterns of behavior. Because the real thing we're seeing here is Facebook accepting little tiny uh, additions of harm, like when they weigh off how much harm is worth how much growth for us. Right now, we can't benchmark and say, oh, you're running all these experiments. Are you acting in the public good? But if we had that data, we could see patterns of behavior and see whether or not trends are occurring. You worked in the civic integrity team mm-hmm. at Facebook. So if you saw something that was concerning you, who would, who would you report to? This is a huge, uh, huge weak spot. Um, if I drove a bus in the United States, there would be a phone number in my break room that I could call. I would say, did you see something that endangered public safety? Call this number. Some, 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 someone will take you seriously and listen to you in like the Department of Transportation. When I worked on counter-espionage, I saw things where I was concerned about national security, and I had no idea how to escalate those, because I didn't have faith in my chain of command at that point. Like, they had dissolved civic integrity. I didn't see that they would take that seriously, and we were told just to accept under-resourcing. But, I mean, you would, in theory, you would report to your line manager, and would it be then up to them whether they chose to escalate that? And I flagged repeatedly when I worked on civic integrity that I felt that critical teams were understaffed. And I was told at Facebook we accomplished uh, unimaginable things with far, far, far fewer resources than anyone would think possible. There is uh, a culture that lionizes kind of a startup ethic that is, in my opinion, irresponsible. Right? The idea that you know, the person who can figure out how to move the metric by cutting the most corners is good. And the reality is, it doesn't matter if Facebook is spending $14 billion on safety a year. If they should be spending $25 billion or $35 billion, that's the real question. And right now, there's no, there's no incentives internally that if, I, if you make noise saying, we need more help, like people will not, you will not get rallied around for help because everyone is, everyone is underwater. In many organizations that ultimately fail, I think that sort of culture exists. There's no, a culture where there's no external audit and people inside the organization don't share problems with the people at the top. What do you think people like Mark Zuckerberg know about these things? I think it's important that all facts are viewed through a lens of interpretation. And there is a, a, a pattern across a lot of the people who run the company or senior leaders, which is this may be the only job they've ever had. Right, like Mark came in when he was 19, and he's still the CEO. 
there's a lot of other people who are VPs or directors who this is the only job they've ever had. And so there is a lack of, um, you know, the people who have been promoted were the people who, you know, could focus on the goals they were given and not necessarily ones that asked questions around public safety. And I think there is a real thing that people are exposed to data, and then they say, look at all the good we're doing. It's like, yes, that's true. But, like, we didn't invent hate. We didn't invent ethnic violence. And that's not the question. The question is, what is Facebook doing to amplify or, or expand hate? What is it doing to amplify or expand ethnic violence? You're right. I mean, Facebook didn't invent hate, but do you think it's making hate worse? Unquestionably, it's making hate worse. Thank you. Joining us remotely, uh, Jim Knight. Uh, thank you very much, Chair, and thank you, Francis, for uh, coming and, and talking to us. Um, first of all, just on some of that, that last fascinating discussion that you were having, um, if you, you talked about if you were calling out for help, you wouldn't necessarily get the resource. Would the same be true if you were working in PR or legal within Facebook? Um, I have never worked in PR or communications, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, I do know that there is. Um, I, I was I was shocked to hear recently that Facebook is rebrand is wants to double down on the metaverse, and that they're going to hire ten thousand engineers in Europe to work on the metaverse. Because I was like, wow, do you know what we could have done with safety if we'd had ten thousand more engineers? It would have been amazing. Um, I think there is a view inside the company that safety is a cost a cost center. It's not a growth center, which I think is very short term in thinking, because Facebook's own research has shown that when people have worse integrity experiences on the site, they are less likely to retain. I think regulation could actually be good for Facebook's long term success because it would force Facebook back into a place where it was more pleasant to be on Facebook, and that could be good for the long term growth of the company. Thank you. Um, and then let me go back also to the discussion about Facebook groups, um, by which we're essentially talking about private groups, clearly. Um, if you were asked to be the regulator of uh, a platform like Facebook, how do you get the transparency about what's going on in private groups, given that they're private? I think there's a real bar. Like We need to have a conversation as society around how many people, uh, well, after a certain number of people have seen something, is it truly private? Right? Is that number 10,000? Is it 25,000? Is it, is it really private at that point? Um, because I, I think there's an argument that Facebook will make, which is that you know, there might be a sensitive group, which someone might post into, uh, and, and we, you know, we wouldn't want to share that, even if 25,000 people saw it, which I think is actually um, more dangerous, right? That, that if people are lulled into a sense of safety, that you know, no one's going to see their hate speech, or no one's going to see maybe a more sensitive thing, like maybe they haven't come out yet, right? Um, that is dangerous because those spaces are not safe, right? When 100,000 people see something, you don't know who, 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 who saw it and what they might do. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of both Google and Twitter are radically more transparent than Facebook, right? People every day download the, the search results on Google and analyze them. And people publish papers. And because Google knows this happens, they staff software engineers who work on search quality to write blog posts, Twitter knows that 10% of all the public tweets end up going out on their fire, on their fire hose. And people analyze those and, and do things like find information operation networks. And because Twitter knows someone is watching, they behave better. I think in the case of Facebook, and even with private groups, there should be some bar above which we say, enough people have seen this, it's not private. And we should have a fire hose just like Twitter, because if we want to catch national security threats like information operations, we need to have not just the people at Facebook looking at it, we need to have 10,000 researchers looking at it. And I think in, in addition to that, we'd have accountability on things like algorithmic bias or understanding whether or not our children are safe. That's really helpful. And just on Twitter and algorithmic bias, they published some, uh, a, a report on Friday suggesting there was, an, there was a, an algorithmic bias politically. Do you think that is unique to Twitter or would you say that that would also be the case in Facebook? Is that something implicit in the way that these algorithms and these platforms with all of their algorithm, algorithms are designed to optimize clicks and therefore there's something about certain types of political content that makes it more extreme that is endemic to all of these uh, social media companies? Um, I am not aware of any research that demonstrates a political bias on Facebook. Um, I am familiar with lots of research that says the way engagement-based ranking was designed, so Facebook calls it meaningful social interactions, though meaningful could have been hate speech or bullying up until November 2020, and it would still be considered meaningful. So let's call it social, social interaction ranking. 
I've seen lots of research that says that kind of ranking, engagement-based ranking, prioritizes polarizing, extreme, divisive content. It doesn't matter if you're on the left or on the right. It pushes you to the extremes, and it fans hate, right? Anger and hate is the easiest way to grow on Facebook. There's something called virality hacking, where you figure out all the tricks on how to optimize Facebook. And good actors, good publishers, are already publishing all the content they can, they can do. But bad actors have an incentive to uh, play the algorithm. And they, they figure out all the ways to optimize Facebook. And so the current system is biased towards bad actors and biased towards people who pushed people to the extremes. Thank you. And, and then currently we have a, a draft bill which is, uh, is focusing on individual harm rather than societal harm. Uh, given the work that you've done around democracy um, as part of your work at Facebook. Do you think that it is a mistake to omit societal harm? I think it is a grave danger to democracy and societies around the world to omit societal harm. Uh, To give like a core part of why I came forward was I looked at the consequences of choices Facebook was making and I looked at things like the global south and I believe situations like Ethiopia are just part of the opening chapters of a novel that is going to be horrific to read. Right? We have to care about societal harm, not just for the global south, but our own societies. Because like I said before, when an oil spill happens, it doesn't make it harder for us to regulate oil companies. But right now, Facebook is closing the door on us being able to act. Like We have a slight window of time to regain people control over AI. We have to take advantage of this moment. And, and, and my final question, and thank you, is... <laughs> Undoubtedly, just because you're a digital company, you'll have looked at user journeys and, and uh, analysed in a lot of detail the data around how different user journeys work. Is there any relationship between paid-for advertising and then moving into mm. some of these dangerous private groups, possibly then being moved into messaging services, into encrypted messaging? Um, are, are there user journeys like that that we should also be concerned about, particularly given that paid-for advertising is currently excluded from this bill? I am extremely concerned about paid-for advertising being excluded because engagement-based ranking impacts ads as much as it impacts organic content. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Ads are priced partially based on the likelihood that people like them, reshare them, do other things to interact with them, click through on a link. An ad that gets more engagement is a cheaper ad. We have seen that over and over again in Facebook's research, it is easier to provoke people to anger than to empathy or compassion. And so we are literally subsidizing hate on these platforms. It is cheaper substantially to run an angry, hateful, divisive ad than it is to run a compassionate, empathetic ad. And I think there is a need for things, even discussing um, disclosures of what rates... We're going to leave uh, Francis Haugen there testifying before the UK Parliament and bring you some context. Joining us now is Carol Cudwalder. She's journalist at The Guardian and co-founder of the real Facebook oversight board. That's an alternative to Facebook's own appointed board. She also broke the 2018 Cambridge Analytica story. Carol, great to have you with us. Um, I want to get your views here. Facebook themselves have said, look, uh, Francis is cherry picking. She didn't have full understanding and insight into what was going on at Facebook, but she's brilliant and she's very punchy and she's very detailed about explaining what's going on. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, I think it's Facebook tried to claim that, didn't they, when she, she'd given evidence to Congress. You know, subsequently, we've got now 17 news organisations who've collaborated to look through these documents. You know, this morning, we've seen an absolute deluge of news articles. So, I mean, I think this idea that Francis Haugen is cherry-picking, you know, alongside these massive news organisations, CNN included, is a complete busted flush. I mean, there is absolutely, um, you you know, I I don't think that could be substantiated in any way, shape, sense or form anymore. No, but she said some things that I think for most of us that have been looking at this and you yourself since before 2018 and other news organisations have been reported, um, engagement-based ranking, prioritising hate and extremist views, um, the idea that they don't have enough moderation of of content in other languages, never mind English, and the difference between the United States English and and English English or British English, um, the idea that they promote hate and actually that's part of the business model, that safety is a cost, not a growth tactic. Much of this we've heard before. Does this time 
make a difference? Will it be different here in terms of tackling Facebook from the perspective of regulators? Because what more do they need? Well, I mean, I think the thing is, is that, look, if Facebook was a normal company, I think today there would be real questions about Mark Zuckerberg's position. And I think he would have to be seriously considering stepping down. The problem is, is that Facebook is not a normal company. And that's that's the sort of the scale and nature of the problem that we're, we're seeing here. But I think what's really important today is that we're taking this now to the rest of the world. That as you sort of say, that it's actually Facebook's impact across the rest of the world, which is even more damaging in the United States. And so having Francis Haugen in Britain today, where this, you know, this sort of landmark piece of legislation is currently being debated around how do we hold these tech giants to account? And um, so I think this is, I think, <laughs> I think it's, a, I mean, it's a big day for Facebook in so many ways, but they are running out of road. I think they are running out of road, you know, and uh, it's just really the question of what happens next. I know. I separated the damage from the business model and the use of it, particularly by small businesses for advertising purposes. And these are two separate things. Is actually the best way that we tackle this as part of being one of the near three billion users that use Facebook or Facebook products? Actually, we have to understand that we're in these echo chambers and we have to be careful what we're reading or viewing or seeing or sharing. I don't think it can be on individuals. I mean, I think this, this, this platform is so embedded into our lives in the way that we use WhatsApp to communicate, especially around the rest of the world. It's just, it's not enough. But, you know, as individuals, there is only so much we can do to protect ourselves. And this is why, you know, we desperately need legislation. And I do think that's why it's very important today that Francis Haugen is giving this evidence to the British Parliament and the British Parliament is currently debating ways, looking at ways of like, you know, potentially imposing really big fines upon the tech giants if they fail to deal with these problems. I mean, this is, there is some, there's some really serious outcomes from this that, um, you know, could potentially be replicated around the world. Yeah, they don't create hate, but they help promote it. And societies all around the world are quaking. Carol, thank you for joining us. And thank you for waiting around while we listen to that too. Carol Cudwalder there, the journalist at The Guardian and co-founder of the Real Facebook Oversight Board. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. And we'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.